welcome to UBU Pod. Here you'll meet incredible people who tell us about their rich and interesting lives of being visible, of working through challenges, and of coming out the other side. There's so much power in people's stories, and as a curious person, I love finding out how people tick. I'm your host, Megan Hamilton. I'm a speaking, visibility, and confidence coach, and I help you be you. We are here with Jillian Murphy, who helps diverse, smart, health-conscious people who are done with dieting get out of their heads and reconnect with their bodies. She uses up-to-date eating psychology, clinical insight, and guidance around diet culture, health, and weight to teach individuals why they stay stuck in negative patterns with food and feel constant body dissatisfaction and how they can make the shift to food peace and body joy. She also works with parents whose children are struggling to eat properly, whether it's because they are exceptionally fussy or obsessed with food. She helps parents who are stressed out by the fact that their kids aren't growing enough or are gaining weight in a concerning way via simple, practical, research-validated advice. This work is perfect for parents who want to raise children who are a joy to feed, who grow well and have a great relationship with their bodies. Welcome, Jill. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you for coming. I'm so excited to talk to you today because the work that you do covers a lot of ground and is really important for women and for parents of young girls. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I want to start with, so you come from a naturopathic background. Is that sort of where you're beginning into, into what has evolved into what it is today? Is that, is that where everything began? I don't think so. I think it, I think it started way younger than that. Like I was an athlete my whole childhood. I was a soccer player, the captain of the Canada game soccer team, very young, um, and then I played university soccer. I switched into university cross country running. And so I think that my interest in the body and in feminism and mm-hmm. in, um, which is obviously expanded into all the isms, um, was seated quite young. And then I think it was like this mix of this natural interest that I have in food and bodies and health and, um, the experiences that I had that kind of led me down this path to this work. Yeah. Okay. Okay. But you do, you are a doctor of naturopathic medicine. I am. Yeah. I did an undergrad in, in science and kinesiology. So in biochemistry and kinesiology, which is like the study of movement in the human body. And then I did a four year degree in naturopathic medicine with a residency and started a really general practice where I was sort of, you know, working like a family doctor who uses things like herbs and acupuncture and diet. And then my practice evolved, I think as um, the way that I often describe it is as I evolved into the deepest layers of this work, because of my experience with food and exercise in my early twenties, I was 
aware of the fact that I wasn't into dieting and weight loss, but I wasn't totally clear on the connections between weight and health and what needed to be untangled still. And so I was accidentally still selling a little bit of diet culture and, and okay. food control and restriction unintentionally. And then right. it was like through the experience of my own body shifting and changing after the birth of my second daughter that I had to like really confront some of these like deepest layers of the health at every size movement of the body acceptance movement of, you know, like really dig into some of the deeper layers there for myself personally and also culturally. And then from that point on, um, it's like one of those things, like once you see it, you can't unsee it and you never get to go back. I, I don't feel so from there, that is, it was that like is a really big, yeah. Yeah. That's so a really big topic like, that's coming up. Yeah. From there it was like, okay, well, I guess that's what my practice is now. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and so since then I've offered for about five years now, I've offered the food freedom, body love signature program, which is like a one-on-one -on -one program for people who are really struggling to eat, whether they're like restricting and they don't know how to stop, but they're exhausted by it, or they're swinging between restriction and feeling really out of control around food and, and, or just really struggling with their bodies. Right. And, and then mm -hmm. there's this little piece where I'm starting to circle a little bit back to my roots as a naturopath, where I think in the new year, I'm going to be offering a program on kind of burnout and um, finding a foundation for health in your late thirties, forties, where we look at sleep and stress and how to add in strategies to lay this beautiful foundation for health, how to nourish ourselves, how to find out what the best way to move for ourselves is so that we're prepared. You know, when I hit 40, I was like, Oh, my body's changing and, and there's more to come, you know, there's yeah. oh, hormonal yeah. <laughs> shifts to come and there's body shifts to come and there's, mm -hmm. um, potentially health conditions, you know, like I'm, I'm doing this podcast series called beyond weight right now, all about lifestyle conditions and, um, things that have been typically blamed on fat and life choices and food and bodies. And is there a way to work with these conditions in a body accepting compassionate way? And there is right. But yeah. I think that we need to lay the foundation for that. One of the hardest things about working through health concerns or life body shifts is that we're not already connected to ourselves and already aware of what's right for us, right? We're still operating on what should be working for us. Well, and that's something, I mean, that's sort of the foundation for a lot of this stuff is why do we have such an unhealthy relationship with food? And especially as women, and certainly this is, you know, I, I mean, I, I, I remember once, uh, one of my roommates, uh, just as soon as I left university was a guy and he had been anorexic through high school. And at that point I had never heard of anybody other than a girl going through anorexia. And so in order to stress that, to make sure that, you know, this happens to a lot of people, a lot of people's relationship to food is, uh, complicated and, and, However, sort of if we if we want to focus on women today, what what happens? Why are we coming into you know these this strange relationship with food? Well, so you touch on a really important point, which I always try to make as well, which is that eating disorders affect men and boys, eating disorders affect transgendered people. Um, yeah. they affect people who are just using food to manage 
mood distortions and, and it has nothing to do with diet culture. It has, oh, I shouldn't say nothing. That's never, diet culture is always playing into it. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's not necessarily just about the cultural storyline. Traditionally, why it has affected um, girls and women is because there has been a more rigid body and beauty ideal for girls. And so if we understand that um, a large proportion of eating disorders are born out of the fact that we believe our bodies are wrong. So this is seated quite early, that there's like one way for a body to be. Mm-hmm. And typically it's been thin and white and cisgendered and heterosexual mm-hmm. and able and all of these isms, but it's very rigid and it is specifically highly unattainable. Like it holds social privilege because it is inherently unattainable for most. And so we're fed this body and beauty ideal. And again, I just want to be clear that it's changing and, and, you know, eating disorders in males are underreported and they're growing because the body ideals for men are also becoming bigger and stronger and, and more pervasive. But again, historically, if we're focusing on women, it has just been bigger and harder. Like an example that I, I recorded another podcast before this, and we were kind of laughing about the fact that like, it's not very funny, but that, you know, Alec Baldwin is allowed to age and, and gain weight and he gets to stay sexy, you know, but women yeah. are not allowed to age and gain weight and get rid of wrinkles and stay sexy. That's not no. part of the storyline. And so if we see that, and that's obvious to us, we can see the difference between men and women. Right. While acknowledging that things are shifting and not totally black and white, right? Yeah. But we can see that there is a different storyline around male and female bodies where it has been very rigid for women. And not only that, but an incredible amount of our worth and value is tied up in it. Like yes. even more so than for males, which is more about, you know, knowing everything and being the smartest and making the most money or what, whatever, you know, it's a slightly different storyline for, for males traditionally or historically. So for women, it's all of our worth and value are in how we look, how we're supposed to look is inherently incredibly difficult to achieve. We're going to spend most of our life twisting ourselves up in knots, trying to get there. And the like, way literally. That we're taught, literally, <laughs> and the way that we're taught to get there is through the tools of food restriction and exercise. And we're taught that that should be easy. It's simply a matter of like willpower and mathematics and that it should work exactly the same for everyone. And under these misguided myths and bad assumptions, we start using, I, the way that I often describe it is we start using food and exercise as weapons against our body. And then we're fighting and then we're fighting and we're fighting and we're fighting. Yeah. Like always. And there's no, so, you know, I talk about and through no fault of anybody, but from a, from a young age, I was taught that to stand up straight, you had to put your shoulders back and hold your stomach in. So now from my perspective, as a person who's teaching people how to stand up straight, like actually stand up straight, like properly, as well as, you know, take deep breaths. I've gone to massage therapists before who tell me that the area like under my rib cage, my diaphragm is the tightest they've ever felt before, because I just hung on to this idea that I needed to have this flat stomach and hold my stomach in. And I, you know, I don't breathe properly because of that. (laughs) It's just like, what the fuck are we doing to ourselves in the exercise world as well? Right. Like one of my favorite, um, 
teachers of movement is Jesse Mundell, who does a lot of postpartum exercise recovery and stuff. And she does the same thing. She talks a lot about not holding in your stomach and all of these, these, these bad things that we've been taught. And yeah, so many women have like tight diaphragms, you know, tight hips as well, but like, yeah. Yeah. Well, exactly. Cause it goes right into your hips and then it like, it's all interrelated and then you're, you're, you know, and so it even gets to the point where when you learn how to actually stand sort of, you know, quote unquote properly in a more, uh, musculature positive way, it feels wrong. (laughs) Like, and you can't, you're like, and also it feels incredibly vulnerable because you have built your entire life thinking that you needed to do this specific thing. And then all of a sudden you're letting it go. And it's like, you know, this, this could be 40 plus years of uh, holding in your emotions right here and trying Mm. to let it go is like impossible. So, okay. So we're talking about, where we began when I first started learning about the work that you were doing, and this is going back a few years, I remember seeing a post about how you have to start by just letting yourself eat whatever you want, just going for it by, by having whatever you want in the cupboard, not thinking about it, allowing yourself to eat whatever you want. And I was like, Oh no, like, no, that's not, that's not going to work for me. I've had women I'm cry, gonna... like literally just burst into tears with, <laughs> and not with joy with fear when that has been suggested. Right. Yeah. Um, I was like, I am going to eat bags zero and trust. bags and bags of m Zero trust in your body. And so this um, is, you know, I'm an associate with the Ellen Satter Institute and she's like, you know, such an amazing researcher on bodies and nutrition and people. And she's a family therapist. And you know, what she talks a lot about is the fact that our current nutritional education is completely, it's a complete deficit model. It's under, we're under the assumption at all times that we are in a deficit. We cannot be trusted. We will not get the variety we need. We will not eat the right amount of food. Our appetite cannot be trusted. We can't be trusted around sugary, fatty things. Whereas her model is a trust competency model, which is that we are born with the ability to regulate ourselves. And it's all of this messaging that interferes and layers and buries and suppresses our ability to be competent around food. And so, so my work with kids, with, with, which is predominantly with their parents actually, and with adults is about stripping away those layers. It's about getting rid of untangling, you know, pulling apart all of this misinformation so that we can just find again, that ability to regulate ourselves around food. I, you know, one of the stories that I tell is um, Janine Roth, you know, it's become apparent that her work kind of didn't go quite far enough, but she was one of the preeminent like writers around binge eating and around emotional eating. And one of the first people that started to, you know, for me in my early twenties, explain my relationship with food. And again, there's some limitations to her work. It was still a little bit wrapped up in a bit of diet culture thinking, but I remember her going on Regis and Kathy Lee at the time. Oh, I loved that show. I did too. It was like one of those weird, like I thought when I grew up, like I thought like weirdly, that's what like being an adult was, was like drinking coffee and going to Broadway shows at night. I I have this weird nostalgic (laughs) Mm -hmm. attachment to that show. Um, I know. But she was on and she was talking about 
eating ice cream sundaes in her work. And she, and Regis was like, you know, that classic Regis, like what, you know, like you just, I can eat as many ice cream sundaes as I want, you know? And she was like, yes, that is the work I do. And then she was like, you know, and then, and then she's like, but I don't know very many bodies that actually genuinely like to eat ice cream sundaes all day, every day, hot fudge, ice cream sundaes, you know, like, we think we want them because they're completely off limits, but when they're completely allowed, children and adults alike hit a point in the research, it's called sensory specific satiety. In real life, it's called just getting sick of things that we've had over and over and over again. Right, you know? right, right. Like even my favorite food gets tiring when I've eaten it and overeaten it over and over and over again. Um, but these right. food will, these foods- Or if you're don't... using it- um, because they're off limits. And then when we do eat them, we tend to be totally checked out. So we're not even experiencing it. Right. Right. Okay. So for example, I have a giant bag of Hershey's kisses and like a giant bag. And I bring it with me to the computer and I'll unwrap several at a time. This is actually, this is true. This is from like, I can, this is what I did when I was in my thirties and cigarettes. I would smoke them too at the same time. And I would just like power eat like a bag, like probably like, you know, you know how people would be like, oh, like I had like, like two chocolate bars. And I'd be like, dude, that's like, that's like every day. Like I, I, I would eat, I don't know, like. 50 to 75 Hershey's kisses in one sitting on the regular, Mm -hmm. I was super depressed Mm -hmm. and, um, and it, it became like, I I don't even know, like it was, it was helping myself feel better. It was, um, it, it did actually make me feel better. I was zoning out while I was doing it. So yeah, like you said, I wasn't enjoying it. I mean, you bring up an interesting point, which I talk about a lot with the people that I work with, which is that there's like kind of three prongs to this relationship with food. And the, the, the one that I work on is how diet culture and our beliefs about our body and this really, um, unhealthy relationship that we've been taught to have with food affects us. So we'll talk about that in that respect. There's also our personalities, like different people have different personalities. And so diet culture affects different personalities differently. Like, you know, there's, it's very common for, um, you know, highly empathetic, perfectionistic. There's like specific personalities that are highly affected by the diet culture messaging and how it plays out and how we have to work to find a place of you know, quote unquote balance or recovery with people. Cause we have to work with personalities. Like we're humans as well, right. you know, and we, we have not our own same. quirks yeah. and yeah. Then the third prong is mood regulation and dysregulation. And that if someone right. is managing mood regulation or dysregulation, then we have to be, we have to be willing to adapt our strategies to that because there is, there is potentially going to be different coping mechanisms that are compelling in those situations. And how do we work with, I'm always talking about working with the body, working with the human so that they can get what they need while not, you know, veering too far into activities that have a lot of negative consequences. So, right. I'll just say that from, you know, like this overarching thing, you know, maybe the depression was playing really heavily into it. I'm not sure. But I will say that from that diet culture perspective prong, what we know is that um, 
we haven't often been taught how to really enjoy food and engage in pleasure. And so we do these things where we physically allow food into our body. So you're eating the chocolate all day, but are you actually enjoying it? You know, one of the, the homework items I'll give people is like, um, you know, every day, um, I want you every, every meal and every snack for the next week, I just want you to choose the most pleasurable thing. And automatically they're like, Oh my God, all I'm going to eat is chocolate and sugar. But I'm like, "Eh, let's see how this goes. (laughs) But when you're really consciously choosing something and you're sitting down to enjoy it, cheese gets Mm. tiring, chocolate gets tiring. um, Mm. And maybe you do want it for the first, like three days. And then eventually you're like, if you're really allowing it, like really emotionally allowing it and trying to enjoy it, you tend to find an endpoint much faster. Right. Oh, that's so interesting. We find an endpoint much faster. I will say that within the Ellen Satter work, what's really interesting is that it is a trust model, but there is some structure to it, which is specifically helpful when um, I'm working with kids because kids are not developmentally ready to have no structure to just eat intuitively for pleasure all day, every day. Right. (laughs) I will also say that there Mm -hmm. are some adults, if there's some disordered eating or there's some mood dysregulation where the structure, or there's like a health condition or concern where the structure is very helpful. So a little bit more like sitting down and eating and not unconsciously just eating at the computer all day. And I want to talk more about that because that's really interesting. And we're just going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Are you curious about shadow work, but don't know what it is or don't know where to start? Do you want to dig deep and get to the root of what is making you afraid and stopping you from moving forward? Or do you just want to start 2021 with fresh eyes? It's Megan here. I've put together a free workbook called Me and My Shadow. I talk a little bit about the origins with Carl Jung, give lots of examples of what shadow work is, and provide you with a ton of journal prompts to get you started. Head over to my website at www.ubuskills.com to get your free copy. And we are back. We are talking to Jillian Murphy. And so before we left, we were talking about kids and the Ellen Satter Institute. And so I remember reading early on about Ellen Satter's work and about how you put everything out. This is how I understood it at the time. You put everything out on the table because I do have a picky eater and it's been Mm -hmm. complicated to try and figure out how to get iron into her, for example. Mm -hmm. So you put everything out, including dessert Mm -hmm. and you let your child just decide what they're going to eat. Is that, is that the gist of it? Yeah. So the, well, let me in, in kind of like the broader explanation is that Um, I like to think of it a little bit like, I don't know if you're familiar with Barbara Coloroso's parenting books. She's such an amazing parenting expert, but she talks about the fact, oh, she's incredible. And I, I saw her once speaking here in Kingston. She wrote the bully, the bullied and the bystander. It was anyway, she's incredible side, side note, but she talks about parenting and she talks about brick wall parents, which is like a lot of old school parents are brick wall parents, my way or the highway. This is it. These are the rules. No exception. You know, (laughs) your curfew is 11. If you're one minute after 11, you're grounded. I don't want to hear an explanation. Don't talk to me. Here's your food. Clear the whole plate. Don't talk to me. You know, brick wall. Jellyfish parents are the opposite. You know, maybe they were raised by brick wall parents. And so in their attempt to not make the same mistake with their kids, 
no rules. No rules. Come home whenever you want. Um, eat whatever you want. Eat whenever you want. Eat in front of the TV. Eat whatever, you know, like it's just, and it's, it, all of it is born out of totally amazing intention. But, you know, in those situations, we can see where over interference and under interference affects children's development. And okay. she talks about good parenting is backbone parenting, where we have this nice, solid structure that kids can feel safe within and it's nice and flexible and movable. Right. And so I feel like the, that is what Ellen Satter feeding is all about. So it's about not being a brick wall, not being a jellyfish. It's about being a backbone feeder, which means that she has what's called the division of responsibility. Parents are responsible for the structure, the what, the when, the where of feeding. So you're responsible for feeding your kids regularly. That's part of your parenting, giving them regular meals and snacks, grocery shopping, preparing food. And she's not that fussy about it. The reality is she could not care less if it's mac and cheese or pizza or whatever. Like she just wants the foundation of good eating and good feeding is nourishing our kids regularly, sitting down and eating with them, paying a little bit of attention to the food that we eat, um, And then learning how to socialize and engage at the table. So parents are responsible for the what, the when, and the where. Kids, once at the table, are responsible for the if and the how much. If they're going to eat and how much they're going to eat. And then there's all of the nuance to it. But the bottom line is it's like there's like a double yellow line in between those two two responsibilities and under interfering and over interfering. Crossing that line tends to interfere in children's ability to figure out how to, to feed themselves. Right. Yeah. And it comes from parents thinking they know how many calories a kid needs or how many, when a kid should be eating a certain food or how many, you know, the balance of foods that should be on a plate. But what we know about children is that they eat wild, wildly different amounts of calories from one kid to the next and from one meal to the next within the same child. And that they, they grow to eat like their parents within the structure over their entire childhood. And so, you know, one of the things when parents are really freaking out, my kid doesn't eat that, my kid doesn't eat that. I try to remind them, you know, like what were some foods you hated as a kid and when did you start liking them? And it's like, oh, you know, I didn't start eating tomatoes till I was 21 or I didn't start, you know, and it's like, right, remember. And you eat them now. And you eat them now. So it's like, what we understand is that when parents provide the structure and it doesn't need to be perfect, it just, we need Mm. to be making a good old try at, at a solid structure and regular feeding. So kids are not allowed to just eat whenever they want. They're given meals and snack times, and then they're allowed to sort it out for themselves when they're at the table. What we know is they grow appropriately for their genetic blueprint. They grow to eat the way their parents eat. They learn to eat vegetables and fruits again, very much like their parents do, you know? Mm -hmm, So if you don't mm -hmm. like vegetables, you may end up with a kid who doesn't like vegetables and mealtimes are much more pleasant. And so then there's, you know, what you're getting at, which a lot of people get hung up on is the use of what she calls forbidden foods. And so, um, the one she just often recommends using forbidden foods really judiciously, like just, you know, mostly at, like, like often at snack times, like just occasionally put out a huge bowl of chips with, uh, you know, some chopped up apple and let your kids just eat till they're done so that it's not, it's not a big deal. It's just something they, they become competent at right. managing themselves, right. put out a big plate of cookies with no rules and just let them figure it out. You know, um, dessert mm-hmm. is the one moment 
where the, the division of responsibility gets broken a little bit, because we do know that sugar can interfere with, you know, more so than salty or fatty foods, sugary foods can interfere. And, and dinner time tends to be one of our, our most nourishing meals of the day. So if you want to give dessert every night of the week, three nights of the week, you're the parent, you're deciding that, but everybody, if there's desserts being offered, everybody gets it. You don't have to earn it, but there's only one serving of it that way. Um, kids, what young kids particularly will do is when they start to understand that desserts being served, they just stop eating and say they're done really early. Mm -hmm. And so the whole point of putting it on the table, and I've seen this recently, um, with my very young nephew, my sister was going through it where he would know they'd made brownies that afternoon. So he would know that there was brownies coming. Mm -hmm. So we'd eat like three bites of dinner and then be like, I'm done dessert time. And so what the putting it on the table, it freaks people out a little bit, but you know, my sister did it. And then she's recommended to some of her friends recently, and they found the same result is that once it's on the table, yeah, kids, they, they often will take a bite of it first or a few bites. Sometimes initially they eat the whole thing first, but if it's only one serving, they're still hungry. So they go back to their dinner and, and then what, what she found and her friends found, and I find in my work all the time is that what often happens is kids just start alternating. So they have a bite of brownie and then they eat their potatoes and, and <laughs> veg meat or whatever, bread right. or rice or whatever. And then they have a few more bites and like, and she's like, it's amazing. Sometimes he doesn't even finish the brownie, but the whole idea is that kids will learn quite quickly that there's not going to be enough dessert to fill up on. Right. So, and they don't have to panically stop eating in order to get that dessert in. So that's the purpose. I'll say that now, you know, with older kids, our kids have really ingested that lesson. And I don't often put dessert on the table. Rarely, you know, maybe on a weekend lunch, I might, if I'm, you know, I'm not really serving a lot of people these days with COVID, but if I was having a lot of people over, you know, especially my parents or something very Irish, we would cut up the squares and just throw them on the table. Um, but at this point, I think my kids really understand like the social, the social way that we eat and that, you know, we tend to eat dessert at the end, but they, you know, they know that they don't have to panically stop their food or like rush to get through it in order. Like it's, it's there it's you get right. it. Um, right. But that is, that is yeah. one of the nuances of the division of responsibility, I would say. And sometimes people, it freaks people out because they're like, you know, it feels um, insane. Well, it just, yeah, it's like every, it's against every single thing that certainly I learned growing up, which was you sit down, you eat your dinner, all of it, all of it, hungry or not. And you don't get dessert if you don't eat right. your dinner. Um, and there was always dessert and that's, you know, that's, uh, that was the other thing. There's always something for dessert in our house. The habits that we learn as kids growing up, having this sort of, um, having these body ideals put upon us and having different ways and reasons why we eat in a certain way. What do we do as grown ups, and how does this affect our health? Because, you know, I had a woman on, uh, recently in the podcast as well, who is a fat activist and she is really trying to untangle weight and health. So, mm -hmm. you know, I've read so many places and I'm sure you have as well that, you know, um, people who are quote unquote overweight go to the doctor with health issues and the doctor's like, you weight. need to lose weight before we can address this, yeah. whether it's like, oh, I you can't need do surgery, surgery on you. Yeah. Like lose yeah. weight before your thumb surgery, you know? <laughs> and it's, and I've had that said to like a really medium sized person. Wow. 
this is one of my, this is like one of the fundamentals of my work because health, first of all, is a tricky word because health is not actually accessible for everyone, but we live in a very healthist wellness world where there's like a moral obligation to be healthy and to have Instagrammable Mm -hmm. food and for everything to be, you know, to be eating clean. And there's this like moral superiority attached to it, which is, you know, really challenging for a lot of people to live up to. And Mm -hmm. for many people, um, they could spend all day and all their money and all their time and effort doing that. And they would still, you know, if we understand that health is not zero, unless you're dead or a hundred really ever, it's this continuum and we're all, you know, moving along the continuum and our continuums are all a little different because of our genetics and because of life experience, trauma, childhood trauma, mm-hmm. that ACEs, right? The mm-hmm. adverse childhood experience scale we know can affect our how big or how, how broad our spectrum is. Right. And so inherently sort of making health, this ideal that everybody should be striving for is really challenging for people who maybe have chronic illness or who've had trauma or who've had different things. It becomes this un, un, um, another, it's become another unattainable goal where people are obsessively using food and exercise to try to achieve something that may or may not be totally available to them. So health, first of all, I I really am working to redefine that for people and be like, what's, where are you? What does health mean to you? What is the, what is the Mm -hmm. purpose of it? And how much time and effort do you want to dedicate to it before you start getting into this weird area where you're sacrificing more than it's giving back to you? Like, who cares if you add 10 years to your life, if that entire 10 years was spent weighing food, you know, or obsessively yeah. thinking about sugar, like who gives never a relaxing. You know I mean? Yeah. 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 No, just what would not be... being able to enjoy a thing. Right. Yeah. Right. Which happens to a lot of people, right. Mm-hmm. I'm doing oh, X, yeah. Y, Z for health. And you're like, but what's the purpose of health? You can never go out anywhere. You spend all day weighing food. You're not having any fun. What is the purpose of being healthy? If you can't do anything, you yeah. know? Yeah. Um, so redefining, re-exploring what the purpose of health is. And then we do have to untangle it from weight because what we know in the research for ages is that weight can affect health, but predominantly at the very, 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 very farthest ends, both low, actually low, it's not really the farthest end, quite quickly, low weight can affect our health really negatively mm-hmm. and uncontrolled weight, uncontrolled weight. So weight that's all over the place at the very, very high end can have some effects Um, but for the most part, anybody can work toward their highest level of health in whatever body they're in. And I'm talking even in the quote unquote obese, um, or overweight ranges that we have, first of all, I, I mean, I think if anybody's followed my work at all, they know that BMI is a pretty archaic tool that was never Mm -hmm. used, was never (laughs) supposed to be used for individual health. And so it's being used inappropriately. We know that it's way too low, that most people actually sit at a much higher level, just naturally and normally. And Mm -hmm. again, the problem is that the fact that it's used, the fact that it, it places people in problematic categories when they don't have a problem is what starts to initiate their issues with food. And then what we know about the issues with food is that it leads to higher weight and weight cycling and, and um, erratic weight. And that is what has an effect on food. You could be sitting 
70, 80, a hundred pounds above what your BMI says you should be at. And you could be living a great life, moving, eating well. It's this up and down. We know it's related to um, inflammation. Inflammation is, is causally linked to bad health outcomes, to poor health. Fat, not causally linked. Oh, not causally wow. linked. Isn't that interesting? So it's our view of weight that is setting most people up. So that's what this whole podcast series that I'm doing is about. It's about this understanding that um, many people who have some of these metabolic health conditions also have the genetic predisposition to put on weight because they come together. The right. fat hasn't caused it. They, they, they're part and parcel. There's sure. a correlation, not a causation. But because fat is there, fat gets blamed. There's the assumption that this person doesn't know anything about food. They're making all the wrong choices. They're prescribed things that are very bad for them that will never work with their bodies. And then when their body fights back, when they start getting reactive around food, again, they're blamed even more and the cycle continues. There's no winning. No winning. And so when we uncouple, it's not saying we don't care about weight at all. Nothing matters at all. It's like, no, no, we do. But what I'm looking for in people is just a stable weight. I don't care where it is. I'm just looking to see, you know, a stable, a relatively stable weight within a range tells me that you're feeding yourself regularly. Things are kind of settled. You're not restricting and then reacting, you know, and then from there we can work on health promoting behaviors wherever you're at. Right. Right. So I don't know if that answers the question, but, um, it's, it's just very it much about it's so yeah. fascinating. It's like, I mean, you know, from a personal perspective, I remember in theater school getting, going to the gym, which is like part of what our, uh, our program was about and getting, um, each of us had, you know, a, a, a person give us like a, a routine and we had our BMI done. And like, I was on the high end and I was like, my whole what? life, my whole life. I was life. like, what? I don't under, I, I was really now. And I had always been struggling with my own body image. It's not like, like that just started then, but I was like, holy shit. Like, what do I have to do? I am exercising regularly, drinking a pretty good amount of water. Like I'm, I'm drinking a lot cause I'm in university, but I mean, and then I just went to, I went on a no fat diet for, I, I had to have an eating disorder to fall into the right range. That's yeah, the bottom line. So how, According to the BMI, so I had to have an eating disorder. And so this is, you know, this is when it comes to untangling weight and health. It's like, understanding that what we're often telling people will help them achieve health is actually really problematic for most of the bodies. Right. Right. That there's a small percentage of bodies that thrive on that information. <laughs> and they're the ones writing the nutrition books and, you know, but they're the 5% or the 10% that seem to be thriving on it. But most people don't, they're either having to give up physical health mm -hmm. or mental, emotional health in order to achieve the standards that have been set out for them. Are you ready to walk into 2021 like a boss and take charge of your future? I am so excited to offer my new three-month mentorship program. You are going to learn how to speak up, how to be visible, how to let go of fear, how to love yourself in ways you didn't think possible. You're going to improve your speaking skills, your leadership, you will become more authentic, and you will finally be able to own everything that you are. 
and I'm going to be cheering you on and holding you accountable the whole time. Sound good? Email megan at ubuskills.com to find out more. So what does it look like when someone comes to you and they say, okay, Jill, I'm ready to stop this cycle. I really want to develop a better relationship with food. What do do you do? How does it start with you? Um, Well, it starts by, you know, I always say that the first step is re-education. So we explore all of the beliefs about health and weight and nutrition that this person has absorbed. And, you know, there's definitely like a common storyline that, that, that runs through with every person that I work with, but the unique way that we've absorbed it and like the parts of it that are real, that we're really stuck on or hung up on are a little bit different for each, each person. And, um, we pull that apart. And again, every person is a little different. Like some, you know, you might be someone who just needs research. And so I just have to pound you with like research to the, like to the contrary, other people, it needs to be almost always, it needs to be on some level really experiential. So they need to find bright spots and a relief from their food issues for themselves. And so we go through exercises to normalize eating. And then the deeper layer, if we understand this connection that I've laid out today, which is that we really most often have food issues because we believe our bodies are wrong, then, you know, as we're pulling apart the whole food and weight and health thing, I'm also simultaneously just slowly starting to do body image work where we start to shift the way that we see our body in the world. We understand the way bodies are viewed in the world. Um, You know, I'm sure the fat activists talked about it because there's like um, different levels of fat phobia, the ones that live within us, within ourselves, like just like sexism, right? Intrapersonal, Mm -hmm. then there's interpersonal, and then there's like systemic or cultural. And so really understanding that helps to understand the storyline that you're applying to other people and the Mm storyline that you're applying to yourself. And the fact that it is not a fact that it is a story. And when we, when we see that it's a story, we can start to rewrite the story or change the story. When you think it's a fact, like I'm just, I'm just, ugly or disgusting or whatever. When you think that's a fact, there's not a lot of room for change. So we start to, I start to really highlight the storyline and, and, um, and then once everything's really broken down, we start rebuilding, right? So like, let's, let's rebuild what health is for you. Kind of like what I was talking about earlier and like how, like for some people, it doesn't matter. Like I, you know, as a naturopath, I'm fully willing to admit that there are some foods like food can have an effect, right? Mm-hmm. But there are some people because of their history with food, where working with food will never be a good option for them because it's just triggering and it sets them off on a bad spiral. And so we're going to have a different goal with food than with someone who's always had kind of an intuitive, peaceful, relaxing relationship with food and can easily add more protein in or like do X, Y, Z, and it doesn't affect them at all. Right. But right. The, the difference is that when we're not using food to control our body, we've got a lot more freedom with it. And when we understand that food can affect us, but we want to take into account the mental and emotional effects of working with food, as well as the physical effects, then we're just much more conscious of how we, how we play around with these tools and we're careful that they don't become weapons. Right. Yes. Um, That's, that's such a, that's such a good, I love how you talk about using food as a tool versus using food as a weapon. Mm. And so to sort of, to sort of round all of this up, because 
my interest here as well, all of it clearly, but our relationship with ourselves and our sense of self, right, has to do with so many things, but also with how we view ourselves, how we view our bodies. And so being a visible person in the world, being able to talk in front of people, being able to get in front of a group. One of the reasons that I love working with women is because part of what can make it so complicated to get up in front of people is people think I'm fat and ugly and I'm going to get up there. Nobody's going to listen to me. They're just going to think that I'm fat and ugly. Mm -hmm. And so it's like impossible for them to be able to get up and give a speech. So what happens, what happens to women after you've been working with them for a while and they start to really sink into the idea of being themselves and being comfortable with themselves, which, which I think ultimately is, is where things end up. Is that, does that sound right? Like you Mm -hmm. ideally? Yeah. And like I said, this new program that I'm going to be launching is almost like the next step as well, which is moving into even more proactive. Like if you are actually interested in proactively working on you know, bettering your health once you're out of this diet culture mess, you know, right. How do, what does that look like? Um, but I will say that the first thing about that fear is that we need to validate it because the reality is that our culture is shitty to fat people. Mm -hmm. And like, and you know, Linda Bacon who wrote health at every size will say that she was able to launch that movement in a certain way because people listened to her as a thinner person that they wouldn't have. So the first thing I always do is like, we need to be brutally honest about the truths in our culture, the ugly, horrific, dehumanizing truths. And so that is a legitimate fear. And then how do you exist in a world where that is true and be yourself? And then we start to see that, you know, being authentic, being yourself is not this like pretty fluffy, totally happy thing. Mm -hmm. It's this like gritty, hard, sometimes painful reality that like being myself and not abandoning myself and not choosing to have an eating disorder for the rest of my life to make other people happy is like a big, bold, radical act. And I think that there's, that's actually where understanding interpersonal, interpersonal, cultural views of the body is really helpful. Cause I think it can be very fueling if we can't do it for ourselves initially to be able to really understand what a radical act it is just to get up and be yourself and do your thing and prove people wrong. Mm-hmm. So sometimes people yourself, can't do it and prove yourself yeah. wrong. <laughs> and, and sometimes people can't do it just for themselves initially. Yeah, right. But when they realize, like when I stand up here, I'm fighting back against racism and classism and ableism and gender norms and just all of it. Like when you, you know, and when you also start to understand your place in it, like, like I'm still a medium sized person. So even if I'm struggling, most of my struggle is intrapersonal. And so I'm going to stand up here. And even though I might have some insecurities or whatever, I see, I have some perspective on where I sit in this, in this hierarchy. Right. And so I'm not going to pretend that it's so radical. I'm not going to let myself fall down that hole of believing it's so radical for me to get up and speak in front of people because I understand the bigger picture here. I'll still work with the issues that I have. They're still real. They're still real insecurities and fears, but having that perspective is very helpful. Um, And then 
understanding that for people, people in increasingly larger bodies that have things like race layered on top of it, um, it is, it becomes increasingly more radical and like, it's a big deal. It's a big deal to do it. And so how do you build the muscle? How do you build the fortitude to exist in a world that, you know, sees bodies a certain way and just still be yourself and say what you need to say? Yeah. You know? but, yes. It's but, radical. Mm-hmm. It's radical. And it's so, I think it's undervalued in terms of, of how difficult it is to do. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like, oh yeah. It's yeah. like, it's like, I always say it's like the difference between seeing a cute quote on like Instagram or Pinterest and then actually living it. <laughs> and the living yeah. it part <laughs> is sometimes. Oh yeah. It's oh. like, yeah. Well, I, and here I am. I'm like, you know, like, come on women, like let your bellies out, just let them out. And I'm like, I, I, I have to talk myself into going for a walk in my neighborhood with my dog in a giant sweater. I still have to say, whoa, you're not breathing. You should probably just like let go of your stomach. Yeah. And I still go, but, oh, but there's like construction workers across the street. What if they think I'm pregnant? Like, this is a thought that goes to my yeah. mind. Now think I've, I've come through like a different place where I go, okay, so what you, if they you, do? You see it? Yeah, you see it more quickly. You identify so the story. You don't buy into it. are they going to run over yeah. and say, are you pregnant or are you just fat? No, yeah. they're not going to do that. And, and even if they did, you know, I had to work is. myself through that. I, I really did after the second, the birth of my second daughter, because I was asked all the time, you know, when I was expecting again and. Um, last year, somebody asked me and it was like the first time where I felt like, okay, I've done the work. Somebody asked me and it didn't destroy me. It didn't like, I was just like, oh, I have a belly. Like lots of women have bellies. It's actually really normal to have a belly. (laughs) I grew humans, everything's stretched and my hormones are changing and I'm getting older and yeah, yeah, women have bellies, you know? And I, and I didn't feel weird about holding the weird emotions of the person who'd said it or like whatever. I was just like, I've got a belly. That's the reality, you know? Um, but, but, you know, the other reality is that hating your body, loathing your body, feeling bad about your body, feeling insecure about your body is a normal, natural reaction to the way that our culture currently views bodies and bodies. And so, you know, I was just, uh, interviewing Laura Burns and Julie Duffy Dillon for this episode on PCOS. And Laura's also a fat activist and, you know, she, she just talks about the fact that we are the, the doing this work is swimming against the current. It is. Right. It is. And so when you stop swimming, you get swept away, right? That this is, um, which was just another, it was just a beautiful way to explain what I say all the time, which is just like body image, a positive, even neutral body image is a process. It yeah. is work. It is not something you just like flick a light switch and one day you feel good about your body and like done and dusted. Like that is yeah. not good. It, Next it is. Yeah. Right. Ever. It's like, an, it's the ongoing work of, of living within a culture that says you're only a value if you are like thin and white and young and you know, you, you have this specific shape, then you are a value and everyone else is of differing less value. Yeah. Right. Oh, I love um, that. I love, yeah. I love that you talk about accepting. I love that you talk about, cause it's so important. Acknowledging that your fears are based in reality. You're mm. not just, you're not 
fucked up because you feel this way. And someone would be like, don't be so silly. I'm not being silly. Actually, this is <laughs> no. actually exactly how society is. And every I am right movie I've watched with, yeah, every movie that I've watched with my kids in yeah. the past, like 10 years, there's like some joke about fat being fat or like the fat person or the weight or the whatever, like this is our kids are still being fed this. Yeah. It's, it's become as all of the other isms we're recognizing that they're more and more and more inappropriate and don't get me wrong. There's still lots of issues, but like, as those things become less and less socially acceptable, it's like more and more of it gets, gets, you know, channeled into weight and, um, right. Uh, yeah, it's just, yeah, I think it's, I think it's a really big part of the process to be able to hold both of those things in your hands, to be able to hold the reality of how the world sees bodies and do the body work on whatever level you need to do it on. It's one, it's not one or the other is both at the same time. I love that. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on the show today, Jill. This has been really informative and so affirming, right? Mm. Like, Good. thanks for having me. Yeah. Thank you so much. And so I'm going to put lots of information about Jill in the show notes and you'll be able to find her. And again, it's food freedom, body love, and her new podcast is beyond weight. So yeah. make sure you go check yeah. that the out. The podcast is called the food freedom, body love podcast. And the series is called beyond weight. Yeah. Amazing. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Jill. So I just think, you know, it's always so incredible to speak to somebody who says, there's nothing wrong with you. You have actually taken everything in that you have been given. And now we just have to sort it out. And so I really, really appreciate the work that Jill is doing. And you can find her on Instagram at Food Freedom Body Love. Uh, Her website is foodfreedombodylove.com. She's on Facebook at jillian.murphy.nd. As for me, I am wishing you a wonderful holiday season full of eating and enjoyment and relaxing. This is our last episode for 2020. Thank you so much for joining me on UBU Pod. It has been a fabulous time. I love doing these podcasts. We have two already lined up for the new year, so expect a lot more. You know where to find me. Have a wonderful holiday. 